0: you're listening to an mpavilion podcast conversations about design and the world we live in for more visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts
1: for joining us today. (coughs) Can everybody hear that all right? Okay. Um, Welcome to Pedagogies for Future Practice, Emerging Education and Landscape Architecture. Um, We'll start today by acknowledging that we're meeting on the lands of the Boomerang and Woiwurrung language groups of the Eastern Kulin Nation and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Um, and acknowledge that today the, the subject matter is learning and uh, learning about country, place, landscape, but also learning in place and on country. Um, and that the work that we do as landscape architects and the teaching that we do about landscape architecture engages with uh, the lands of First Nations peoples all the time. And that our understanding of that should be something that always grows uh, to help us to be responsible practitioners. Um, I'd also like to acknowledge that we're talking today about um, teaching and learning in landscape architecture and that as uh, Alice and I, Alice Lewis and I are hosting this talk and we kind of have maintained an interest in this because of where we've come from as well. So we'd like to acknowledge that, the lineage that we are uh, a kind of product of or have benefited from um, up to this point and that we, as students of RMIT, um, we've been encouraged to think critically about the world and have been exposed to creative and critical teaching practices. And now as academics at RMIT, there's a continuation of that uh, practice and the encouragement around that. Um, from the discipline of landscape architecture uh, at RMIT, as well as lots of other experiences, obviously, before we became students there and um, everything that's led to this point. So, we're curious about how we teach this subject matter of landscape architecture. And this is the second in a... Second talk in what we're now calling a series, because <laughs> it's the second, um, exploring and celebrating the role of landscape architectural education, not just in, um, you know, teaching new practitioners, but also shaping cultures of practice outside of the institution. <clears throat> Sorry. Should do that away from the mic. Um, but and also, so it's we're interested in how teaching landscape architecture can shape cultures of practice but also how we can uh, develop ways of working which respond to the challenges of the 21st century which are complex and many and in in the context of these conversations we think about pedagogy as the how of teaching so that's sort of how we design learning experiences Um, and that's in contrast to curriculum which is the the content or the information or skills or capacities that are meant to be passed on. And we're through co- this conversation and the previous one where we're, we've been keen to expose and celebrate teaching practices which aim deliberately to reshape cultures of practice so there's a kind of uh, a critical um, and active kind of position to the way that we think about teaching the the discipline of landscape architecture the first talk The first conversation that we had was pitched at a a national scale. It was a very broad conversation in 2021, drawing together people from across the country, all with different relationships to teaching landscape architecture and involved with different institutions around the country. The key themes that came from that conversation were, uh, I guess, thinking very broadly about how uh, institutionalized landscape architecture should be thinking about the future and positioning itself for that. Uh, so that graduates of those courses would be equipped for the challenges of the future. And the key themes that came from that were being part of reconciliation, focusing on the local, ensuring equity of access to education, and challenging the structures of education. And so now I'll pass on to Alice.
2: Thanks, Kyle. Um, And thank you for that acknowledgement too. So today, the second in our giant series, um, we're kind of shifting tact entirely to move to the opposite end of the spectrum and convening conversations with our colleagues who are here and many of you in the audience um, and discussing the highly specific ways we teach to cultivate an ongoing connection and dialogue between the people that we learn with and the places with with which we learn and with um, which we design. So all of us here today are either... Um, sessional or early career academics. Um, and today all of us, were, including Kyle and I, have been thinking about a particular pedagogy or a particular technique that we use to enable learning in different ways. Um, and so that's what we're going to talk to today. So just to acknowledge that Because of this very specific nature, this is by no means a full spectrum of how landscape architectural education happens across Australia or even within RMIT. There are many, many diverse approaches to this. And what you're hearing today is really the ways that we do it. Um, And in that, again, one very specific way out of the many different approaches that we each have. So we'll all give a five minute ish presentation of AU pedagogy um, we've got a couple of organized questions that will prompt a small panel discussion but very much um, hoping that there's questions from you all as well that we can invite a conversation about how this happens so I know that there's students there's graduates there's fellow colleagues um, in the audience so I'm sure you're all experts in different ways. So just to introduce the panel very briefly. So I am um, Alice Lewis, I'm a lecturer. <laughs> I didn't realise that I was at the, fir- at the start of this introduction. <laughs> but anyway, here's me. Um, I'm a lecturer, I'm the program manager of the Master of Landscape Architecture at RMIT. Um, and my research explores human action as a key part of landscape and therefore of landscape architecture. Um, Kyle, who introduced us earlier, is an associate lecturer in landscape architecture at RMIT and Kyle has taught in various design disciplines in QUT, the University of Melbourne and RMIT and his research explores how narratives and processes of landscape of landscape change can be used to increase inclusion and equity for affected communities. We have Elise Northover who is a landscape architect who works between a practice at Marla Studio and teaching landscape architecture as a sessional member at RMIT um, since 2016. And they've also taught at um, Melbourne University's Burnley campus. And next to release, we have Tom, who is a registered landscape architect practicing at ACOM and has been a sessional staff member at RMIT for seven years. And since 2018, Tom and Elise have been continually um, leading seminars and studios under their combined practice Future Operating Environments, FOE, or FOE, (laughs) all of the above, hopefully, Um, which you'll be hearing a bit more about shortly. And then we have Steve Minton, um, who is one of the founding directors of Office. So Office is a not-for-profit, multidisciplinary design and research practice based in Melbourne, and Steve has taught in both landscape architecture and architecture at RMIT University um, and at Monash University. So... With those, Now that we're all introduced, we'll move into the phase where we get to talk about what we actually do. So we are set up in the system that we were going to present in. So I might hand to you, Kyle, and we can roll through that.
1: Cool. Thanks, Alice. So we've got a five-minute timeline, time limit each, so try and stick to that. Um, uh, so my background, uh, I guess the... the the pedagogical, pedagogical approach that I'm gonna talk about is con, it comes from the context of my research interest and that's in post mining landscape transitions. Um, these landscapes are massive in scale and take many decades to uh, change and they're changing constantly. Uh, and by that, uh, because of that, they require the input and coordination and collaboration of many different people, many different voices. Uh, And so, uh, sorry, it's often uh, in, particularly in the Latrobe Valley where I'm focusing my research, there's a very distinct power imbalance and lots of people are often excluded in the, uh, from the process of change. And so I'm interested in how different voices can be brought into processes of change. And so the pedagogical approach that I bring to this talk is treating the studio space as a shared landscape. And so the, the point of doing that is to help, uh, I guess, to encourage students to engage in a process of continuous production of space through very basic activities during class of pinning up, um, contributing layers of drawing to things that are on the wall for that process to happen over many classes uh, and to kind of accumulate over time. And so the intention behind that is that um, rather than focusing on a fixed product of design, uh, the focus is on uh, celebrating and valuing the process of production uh, and that process is one that involves many different people at different points in time. And that actually what the, the process is, I guess, developing in students is the capacity to work together and value the contribution of, of many and, uh, and others uh, in the hope that they develop a, what I would call a relational practice. So practices that can, re- can see the value in relating to other designers, other students, Um, other communities or other periods of time, for example. And let me just... So there's some kind of key techniques that come out of that and that's uh, negotiation is one of those. So negotiating space, deciding on where things go, um, depending on what is anticipated or what other people need. Sorry. Sorry. Asso- thinking about association of things, how things relate to one another on the wall or in the space, uh, and also co-producing. So, in in, a, in landscape architecture, we work with large-scale drawings, and you need more than one person to pin those things up. So, there's like these kind of very basic things that require the contribution of many people. And the art- artifact that I'm using to talk about that is the toolbox. So I don't need to talk about this for very long, but the toolbox is something that I've just started bringing to every single class that I teach, and it has lots of different stuff in it, um, including a whiteboard, duster, different colored shaped stickers, different colored pens, ball of string, um, blue tack, basic things like that, different pencils. Also, this, it kind of accumulates things itself, high-vis goggles from a visit to Hazelwood. I was trying to remember where they were from, but so it it kind of becomes a tool to be kind of actively engaged in the co-production of space. And that's four. Okay. Um, And so this toolbox enables me to be more responsive and... Uh, I guess engage in that active co-production process as well during class time. So it's kind of a, I'm trying to, I guess, model a, a, a an engaged co-productive process through the way that classes occur, um, using the toolbox, and thinking about basic ways of of encouraging co-production so that there can be a degree of comfort developed with that and. Uh, I guess the commonly held fear of group work projects can be um, ameliorated and the the value, the potential value of what others bring into a process can be seen in the foreground. I think I'll stop there.
2: I left those glasses in your toolbox. I accidentally took them home. (laughs) I didn't know what to do with them, so I put them in there.
3: Um, okay, I'll yeah, I think I'll start off for, for FOE. Um, we have various different ways that we say, I say FOE, Tom says, FOE, I would say most of the time, but yeah, it's future operating environments um, is, I guess, what we co-teach under, um, and I think, yeah, where that has stemmed from is kind of displayed at some sort of stage throughout Artifact, which we have a working title kind of for it, not exactly sure what it is yet. And I think maybe that's maybe the first thing to acknowledge. We are trying to figure out, I guess, as a continual process, what we want to teach and how we want to teach. And I guess the kind of crux of that is thinking about the future operating environments that as landscape architects in practice and in academia that we are going to have to engage with And kind of valuing landscape architecture input into those environments um, in a way that kind of maybe brings us in earlier or kind of um, positions landscape as something that's a bit bigger than um, maybe what it's currently seen as well especially in the the, um, I guess practice um, too especially in small firms um, as well Um, I think yeah, I guess what we call this is our our lineage map. Um, and FO really started from Tom and I, I guess, continually crossing paths at uni um, when we were studying and then also when we started uh, teaching as sessional staff um, with the idea that we had these overlapping interests that... Maybe could be something, um, and what that something is, I suppose, is trying. We've tried to map out through through these kind of um, messiness. I think mapping out through messiness is like a crux of of also how we engage with work. That it's really about process, and it's about kind of putting process to the front of the work, um, and not worrying about the outcome of projects um, as much as the kind of process and critical thinking. That students do. Um, and I think pr- uh, trying to kind of also let students have a freedom to kind of bring their ideas to the forefront and validate those ideas through um, the map um, as well. Did you want to talk about the, the yeah, map? Yeah, maybe I'll jump <laughs> in there. That was very
4: well said. Um, <laughs> yes, yeah, so I think in terms of our approach and the t- key tool and technique that we look at is the map. And that's something that from our own, um, through our own lineage, we identify that we've always been interested through how drawing is a tool for communicating a side, a set of conditions, um, ideas, relationships. And through this process of teaching students mapping or way in which to approach the drawing, uh, we're really looking to develop critical awareness or thinking um, processes of reflection. And that's what we're, do consistently and that's probably why we co-teach because we're always trying to develop or understand that dialogue between the map itself and us as the map maker or the student as the map maker and really this kind of conscious act. So this we're kind of borrowing a little bit off Perry Cooper here with the idea of the action drawing or the markup drawing, again, working titles, but we're still working through with the students consistently. Like this is a very similar approach to what you see here with how we'd work with students in class uh, we call our we don't call the classes classes we call them workshops and we're very big on being in manual forms of production um to really yeah to articulate that kind of internalized thinking um and aware uh, the reflection process that's happening but really getting that onto the wall for new discoveries to be made because like a uh part of our process and when we sort of um when we realize things need to change or where things need to update or ideas need to um Evolve is when we stop learning, and we're not learning from the students, and vice versa. We learn a lot off what students bring into class and the new discoveries they've made, and that's huge for us in terms of our own. I guess where we come back to in terms of what we're thinking about doing next and how our own um, studios and seminars evolve and what they come into.
3: Yeah, and I think like a particular point is like that that dialogue has to be spatialized. So an idea, a kind of thought, we call it kind of going down this rabbit hole, but the idea is that you kind of follow it, but then you're extracting kind of constantly that that idea and the kind of keywords that are coming out of that as well. Um, and I suppose the idea of like the territories of kind of ideas or thoughts that start to form um, as kind of critical decisions in the work um, as well. Um, I think, yeah, particularly, like, at the moment, there's been, like, a shift in, like, um, project kind of base kind of studios where it's really the focus has kind of shifted into communication of work and drawing and how the idea of, like, drawing landscape is actually a a valuable tool that maybe doesn't get utilised through kind of practice as much as it could. So, the idea of speculation actually generating projects or ideas that can be brought into the realm um, of real life, um, is super interesting at the moment. Um, so that communication stream is something that I think we're kind of actively investigating and maybe on the crux of like how that fits in again, or kind of recirculates to the front of where we started as well into projects. Um, and that's really based off like, yeah, a point where we kind of saw the, the same projects happening. Um, and then there was a shift in the work that we were doing, um, too. About five
5: minutes. I'll try not to read off this. Um, So I guess like one thing to foreground at the start is similarly what uh, Alice mentioned is that um, so I work as one of the directors of a not-for-profit and we work slightly differently that we have a uh, set of a constitution that governs all the work that we do um, and it's set around four main things that we can do or we decided to do. Um, and we're legally bound to those. And one of those is education. Another is discourse, research, and then built work. Um, So we see that education is a part of the practice. So while I'm talking about what I do, it's definitely, uh, particularly with this project, about what office does as a practice. Um, And we kind of think about teaching and education as a pretty broad spectrum. So not just what we do at university, but then also in doing talks and stuff like this, or whether it's putting out publications, or that we think about it in a really broad sense, so that education and discourse within our constitution bleed into each other quite a lot. Um, so we're, so I'm gonna talk about the, the main technique that we use, um, is pretty broad, but it's thinking about the city as a resource. So we're interested in how the forces typically seen as outside of design shape our city. Um, and through an engagement with these forces, um, how we can become, how we can help to produce more politically engaged, driven um, designers that can claim the agency that we so so desire. Um, so, in order to do this, we see as the city um, as the greatest resource. Um, it's where we can see the manifestations of power play out from invasion through the present day, and then projects forward into the future. Um, So this plays out in all the classes that we teach, but I'm going to talk about one in particular because it's the easiest one for this format. Um, So it's a class that we ran, um, a series of classes we ran, and a public lecture series called the Politics of Public Space, which ended up in a series of books, which are there, which are the artifact bringing tonight. Um, So for three years, we ran a public lecture series throughout the city and unfortunately online for obvious reasons. Um, So we ran them in Melbourne, and then we did a brief series up in Brisbane late last year. So we're interested in bringing in a range of different practitioners outside of those typically seen as design. So what we're really interested in is how politics shapes the city and how it has a much greater effect on the city and what we do as landscape architects than than what we do as designers. So we invited in activists, landscape architects, but then we also brought in visual artists, criminologists, lawyers... Um, people from a really diverse set of backgrounds to allow the students and the general public to get a really diverse set of of understandings of the way in which the city's formed and to try and frame the fact that we actually don't have very much agency and I think anyone who works in practice gets that pretty quickly and I think it's a pretty rude shock when you leave university to go out into practice and when you're taught at university, you seem to be taught in this way that if you have a good enough idea, it's going to come into being. Like if you draw it well enough, it'll exist in the world, which obviously isn't true. Um, and I think slightly disingenuous. Um, so what we wanted to do was to try and allow students to have a greater understanding of a greater set of tools they might be able to use and change the way in which they um, may practice in the future. So we're interested in analyzing the built form, not in projects and, you know, amazing canonical projects that we might think are great, but thinking about the city and the way in which it's formed as a system and the forces that shape that and being really open with the students that the forces that predominantly shape our city are private capital and the neoliberal state Um, and that these things seem really big and scary and difficult to engage with because they are, but in not engaging with them, we give them the agency that we think we should have. Um, So, sorry, I'll work out where I'm up to now. Yeah, so these forces are rarely engaged with, but... We, again, the reason that we're doing this is that we want politically active, engaged designers who give a shit about the fact that the world's on fire and that we're living in an increasingly unequal society. And we want to also, more importantly than that, we don't want to just bomb them out with this information, which can kind of happen, but we want to try and give them the agency and a different set of tools to potentially design within that. Um said all that stuff. Oh, yeah, sorry. So again, to reiterate, what we do as designers, um, it makes up a tiny fraction of the built environment. So the things that actually shape the city are these forces that sit outside of what we do, right? So they are the things that are the power and forces that are governed by politics. And thinking about politics, not as party Canberra politics, but politics in the way in which the city is engaged with and produced by people and those power relationships. Um, And so, as I said, to try and give students a greater set of tools that they can use, because waiting for developers to give us better briefs isn't going to happen. Greedy assholes got us into this mess. Greedy assholes aren't going to get us out. Um, so we need more politically engaged critical thinkers and we want people who won't just go into practice and be good workers, document Greenfield sites or work on NEOM. We want people to be a continually active, engaged and critical of what they do in the workplace. And then that's the way that we think that we can drive a greater change. Um, so our job, as I would say our office is our in that instance, um, is to make evident these issues and by taking the students into the world and giving them different frames to understand it. We understand the world around us is an incredible resource. So whether that's the people we're studying with, academics in other departments, or it's going out to the city and seeing how people occupy it, how one desired move can cause another, um, it's all there. It's just about us trying to point them in the right direction. Um, so just to talk about the brief books very briefly, they documented these series of conversations we had. We've had nearly uh, 45 different speakers throughout the series. Um, we documented them when we put them out um, at the start of the pandemic, which we didn't plan, but it was kind of good timing. Um, and one of the reasons we're doing this was people were asking for them and the, we'd recorded them, but the audio was horrible and unlistened to because there was trams going by and all that sort of stuff. The other one is that it's not sustainable to continue to teach in this way. It relies on an enormous amount of our unpaid labor and the unpaid labor of um, the speakers as well. Um, so then they, as I said, we're trying to expand what we think is an educational resource. So we've seen that the books have been picked up pretty well by students. We've seen them pop up on course guides and stuff like that. Um, and so we see that this is a way that that educational um, framework or pedagogy continue to be useful to students going forward. Uh, so getting outside the siloed realm of an institution to understand the world is far more complex, conflicted and interesting than anything we, again, office, um, has to say is our key approach to teaching.
2: Thank you and thanks to everyone so far. So um, I'm going to talk about something I've been experimenting with lately, <laughs> so it's uh, quite fresh, but um, to this wealth of pedagogical techniques, I am going to talk about the gift as a convivial mechanism. Um, And I am going to read my notes because otherwise I go atrociously over time. Um, So conviviality really comes from the Latin idea of living together and that's really imbued in that idea of living together well. Um, And the exchange of gifts is considered by some, so this is quite theoretical as well, to be a universally understood thing that really enables this living together well. So that is that the giving, receiving, and reciprocating of gifts is a really globally understood process of exchange. So I think we've all been part of it at one point or another. You give, you graciously receive, and there's also some sort of obligation to reciprocate in some way or another. And it's it's a shared language of transaction that really underpins social life. It sustains personal and communal relationships by binding us into that ongoing web of exchange, really. And so one person, Gili so Kliger, sets this up really well by saying, and I'll quote, Social life is nothing other than an extended transaction. We need things from others, both spiritual and material, and they need things from us. And yet, as we've heard in a number of ways today, I think even, um, the types of exchanges that we are often in, both as designers, as people, um, on a day-to-day basis are generally those that operate through an increasingly utilitarian sort of interaction that's really propagated by capitalist market structures. So a lot of the exchanges that we have on a day-to-day basis are exchanges that are governed by laws and by... An economy that is not about a social economy. It's, a, um, and so, it removes that sort of level of personal understanding and trust. And so, to remove the person and the people from that type of exchange and prescribe really prescribes one way of doing something when you um, put it into these concrete laws. And it really has the implications then of hindering or. Reducing the opportunity for creativity, for negotiation, and for social exchange. So, sorry, I've lost my place even though I was reading it. Um, So, I'd say that it is those moments of our capacity to exchange with others, our capacity to engage with others, and um, to have those encounters and... Um, you know, that process of thinking that is fundamental for creativity, for innovation, um, for understanding, and for collaboration. And so I've been really interested in how to fold that into everything <laughs> that I do, um, which probably links back to what I do as kind of more broadly in my research in terms of being under thinking about the ways that we act in the environment as a form of landscape and something that implicates the landscape itself. Um, And feeding that into the way that I work in design studios and trying to find these kind of subsystems of exchange that perhaps sit outside of the standard academic student assessment relationship that is kind of inherent to the institution. So just very briefly, The way that that is generally set up in studios is I'll start the semester by giving a gift. Um, They generally don't cost anything or they cost very little, so it's not about that kind of economic aspect. Um, Everyone in the studio signs up to a week that they would like to give a gift and everyone has 10 minutes they can do whatever they want with that 10 minutes. but the idea is that they bring a gift and it really does become this kind of self-perpetuating system. I don't, I don't police it. If they bring the gift, they do. If they don't, they don't. But so far, no one has not brought a gift. Um, and we've received things from book readings to short film um, screenings to people making presentations, very detailed presentations about fishing and how then they cook the fish, which is actually really interesting... Um, And you end up with a lot of homemade food and really only homemade food. I've never been brought non-homemade, which is, I think, really wonderful because it also kind of shows the commitment (laughs) to this process. Um, And I would say just kind of to conclude with that and where this all fits in, I mean, I'm not really explicitly talking about landscape architecture here. I think this is more about thinking about design and the creativity that is required, especially as we come to grapple with these really complex challenges that we are, and that really require a level of collaboration that I don't necessarily think that those of us here have necessarily been a part of yet. Um, And that this process of gifting, you know, it's a vulnerable thing that people have to do. It's really personal to give a gift. But there's also something really creative and the support mechanisms that are developed around that in terms of, you know, we give, we receive, we reciprocate, opens up to a level of experimentation that I think is really interesting. And, you know, lots of the stuff that is cooked has never been cooked before and everyone kind of brings it along like, yeah, I just kind of did this because I wanted to and now we'll eat it together. And... That's something that I think often when things are bound up in assessment and power relationships is, is a difficult thing to do. Um, and so I'm really keen to progress this ideas of other forms of exchange that happen throughout the design studio that sit outside of, but I think are in direct support of critical, creative, supportive thinking that, in my opinion, is really needed to move into... New territories of thought, and really, our capacity to critique what has been done. Um, oh, and my, I brought an artifact, but it's a gift for you all, so I might just hand that out, and we can start the conversation. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Oh God, thank I made bookmarks. Elise suggested to make. The-
3: I'll take full credit for that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so while Alice is handing those gifts around, um, we'll move to the, a slightly less formal part of the talk. Uh, where we, we've got a couple of questions prepared to try and draw out some of these approaches um, amongst the panel. And then there'll be time as well for questions from the audience. Um, so hopefully we don't answer your, all, all of your questions before you get a chance to ask them. So the first, the first one really is trying to draw out this idea of a culture of practice. So the, um, in preparing the presentations, we asked each of, each of us uh, to think about what is, through our teaching, what is the culture of practice that we're trying to contribute to or to facilitate? Um, and a, so one way to think about that might be to say what kinds of cultures of practice are you reacting to as well? Um, so I'm, yeah, I guess I'll, that's that's the framing of the question. I think that Steve started to, I think you started to talk about that, maybe particularly what you're reacting to. Um, so I don't know if there's anything you want to expand on in relation to the kind of cultures that you're aiming to generate through the the way that you're teaching. It could be a yeah, good place to start. I think,
5: yeah, I think as I've probably touched on and is pretty evident in maybe what we try and do as a practice is trying to think about what happens when you go out and work in the world and what that relationship is to work and the projects that you do and I think that idea of agency is really important and it's like every third year there's another symposium on agency or you know another publication or whatever so we're trying to think about what is that agency towards and then what is that culture that we can empower students and recent grads to to do those things is as best we can in 12 weeks in three hours for 12 weeks um, so attempting to to give that level of agency um, through opening up a range of different ways in which they could work which is obviously we chose a very different way to work as a practice so we think that that is really important like that's foundational to then make the projects occur so trying to get them to think about a more expansive way in which they could work by engaging with a wider set of tools um, which often is trying to encourage a level of Um, design activism and those sort of things which again is sort of what we attempt to practice where we can yeah awesome
1: succinct response Uh, and maybe this is an opportunity for Tom and Elise to respond as well I mean I think you started to talk a little bit about um, dialogue and speculation as a tool to draw ideas out and communication I'm not sure if those are things you want to expand more on or there's something else that comes to mind
3: Um, yeah, maybe I was just thinking about, I think we, the culture in the class is trying to be really transparent with students. So asking them to lay it all on the line and I suppose asking them to not do anything that we obviously wouldn't do in the class. So we are actively broad spectrum, spectrum. (laughs) (laughs) like the work that we're asking students to do and the culture that we're trying to create is that the, yeah, I suppose the lineage map and the way that we're producing work are ways that we actually produce work and that there's like a, a clarity between the ways in which we're operating and then when they come into this, the space, how we're asking them to operate as well. I think like the operation in the class is the, the, the thing or the culture, like they're actively working through the workshop, they're actively engaged in dialogue through the class, whether that's in a group or whether that's like individually with us and that we're also sitting in front of them maybe when they're presenting, bouncing back off each other as a discussion point. Um, so I think the culture is like the dialogue through, through the, the map as, as the way to do that um, so that everything is kind of in front of everyone transparently um, up on the wall at really big scale and you can't hide from what you're finding in, in a way as well, yeah. yeah.
4: Maybe just to build off that a little bit, um, coming back to the lineage, like at the start of each semester, we'll ask the students to bring in like personal interests that are well beyond the like realm of design and landscape architecture and the discipline. Um, Cause we feel if like we've seen throughout the course of our teaching that when the students bring in their own personal interests and start to go that rabbit hole, down that rabbit hole that we've talked through, they're bringing in new discoveries that are per- personal motivation to them and they become engaged with the work because it means something to them and we purposely set very loose frameworks to allow for their own sort of lines of inquiry to emerge. Like each week there'll be something new that we didn't expect and we really enjoy those moments where we have that unexpected outcome or that's that new discovery. And I think proactively engaging with them and instilling that early and just encouraging messy drawings. We notice there's always this kind of situation where this kind of way of working or practice where students are like is this right or wrong can i continue but they're coming to us and as elise touched on that bouncing off of ideas we're a part of the process um, and we're kind of there to support and guide the project so it stays within what's required of course but um (laughs) to the end of semester absolutely absolutely um but yeah to build um what was i saying I got got distracted. I was about to say a joke. I'm glad I stopped. Um, But yeah, I'll end
2: there. Should I go on with question two?
3: Um,
2: I'll I'll move on with our questions just because I'm also wary that it's quite cold and windy out here. Um, And there is one that I would really like to hear from, I think, everyone, because it really acknowledges that a lot of these teaching practices build on... Practices that we have either learnt or picked up along the way, either as students or as academics. Um, and so I think holding that as a context for this question, um, it would be interesting to hear from each of you why you were drawn to this type of practice, kind of where it came from, if it came from somewhere explicitly, but why you were drawn to this type of pedagogy originally and how you really see yourself building on from perhaps what you learned and how it's adapted over time. Um, oh, sorry, that's a different question. Um, <laughs> and whether these approaches change as we've moved through into the 21st century or, you know, as you've kind of progressed in working on them. Um, so maybe, Kyle, I'll throw that one to you. Um,
1: <laughs> no, no, that, that's fine, it's fine. Um, so... Yeah, I have thought about this. So I think um, <laughs> my, I think my when I think about the response to this question, it's mostly through personal experience rather than looking at other, um, like kind of academically looking at other teaching practices. And I think, uh, I think I've been really influenced by um, traveling, like being in place, learning in place, uh, and. I think I, I studied architecture originally and then moved to landscape and also did a year overseas on exchange and so I in a few different institutions and the differences in the way that studio was taught were really distinct um, in terms of how much time was dedicated to it, how the spaces worked, whether or not you had storage on site, like what kind of walls there were. Um, and also that's and field trips are another kind of version of that like I've done a couple of field trips through studios where we've gone and lived somewhere for two weeks and done a lot of community engagement and drawings in in place um, and so inherently the kind of environment that you're in shapes the way that you're able to work and the way that you're able to have conversations and the way that you have to adapt um, the conventions of what you're trying to do um, and I think also, having a bit of a background in construction, I think working on construction projects have been a really interesting uh, learning experience for me. Not just in what like the building process, um, but the way that knowledge is transferred between different people on a building site, and the way that learning happens. Not like you can't just learn through someone telling you how to do something. You have to physically do it and see it go up and see it fail, and um, that's a shared experience. So I think. Those kinds of experiences shape the way that I think about the role of space and the role of multiple contributors to not just creating spaces continuously but learning from that process.
3: Um,
2: Tom and Elise, do you want to briefly talk to this?
3: Yeah, I think um, for me, the kind of teaching approach has always stemmed from the map. I don't know why I was initially really drawn to it, but I think the kind of the components of them that the map can hold, like things like grids or kind of speculation timelines, as a as tools of like generating design, is something that I've always been really drawn to. Um, and I think, yeah, through the the teaching practice that we're well, we're kind of developing, I think we're finding more and more that the information that a map can hold is kind of ever ever expanding. And I think coming back to the point of like dialogues, the dialogues that you're having with the map kind of as, re, as a reflective process is becoming more and more um, important in the work that we're doing as a way to kind of foreground, yeah, I guess, critical critical thought um, about the way that you're acting and the, the decisions you're making. Um, yeah, and I think the the trace as an overlay to like the thickening of this map has become an integral part that maybe wasn't there when I was kind of studying um, the map. It was about the kind of finesse of the drawing. Um, and I guess the messiness has come into it more and more, um, which is kind of nice um, to, to explore um, as well.
4: Yeah, I feel like we're always, like, we started from that original diagram when we wanted to start teaching our own studios and seminars and we went through our own lineage. Like, we unpacked where we were at, almost going back, again, it's like de-thickening and now we've started to like thicken again. So how the studios and seminars and our teaching practice will evolve. Like we're not sure yet. We had a bit of a pivot point last year when we realized things were kind of stagnating or we're on a bit of a whole point and we're kind of treating that again today as a bit of a whole point to kind of reflect, reassess where we're both at, what we're learning, what the students are learning and how our practice can evolve or move forward. And, um, yeah, we're pretty excited, obviously, because we're not sure where it's going to go. But I think that's just a part of it. Like we have to run through the process to find out how it will shift or why it should shift and what that shift could be. So yeah, I think that's kind of where we're at. Pardon?
2: Yes, I think we can... We've only got like one more or two more questions, really. I feel, I feel like Tom... So what's your favourite one?
1: I feel like Tom's, <laughs> Tom's comment just then was beautiful but also was a great segue to question three which is about how things are refined over time so I think you, you talked a bit about hitting this kind of hold point or you're a bit stuck and then really change tack second after that um, so the, the question is that like obviously we, we've all taught uh, for a few years um, and so things obviously adapt and change over time um, so Thomas kind of introduced us into how foe's teaching practice has adapted and changed over time a little bit, so maybe I'll throw to Alice to respond to this one first and then come back to Steve.
2: Okay um, in relation to the gift, it's as I said when I started that it's a very new <laughs> thing I've really only done it once. Um, I would certainly integrate it into every studio that I do for now onwards but I guess potentially in answer to the question, there is certainly something that with teaching in this way, I don't know, I think maybe there's more room for experimentation <laughs> or I've just say making more room for experimentation um, to think about the other ways that the studio can function sort of as a, Part of a bigger broader society and um, design ecosystem, but also just as people living in the world, which is definitely linked to my research interests and you know, processes of gaining clarity on those as well um, but in terms of the gift evolving as an idea, I mean it came out of a conversation with um, a friend in who's a professor of critical fashion practice and in artes and sort of think talking with them about different ways that you could introduce conviviality into studios and learning environments and things and then so this is i guess the the way that i've done it and it will certainly evolve and change over time Um, i'm excited to see what happens but i do not yet know
1: (laughs) future of possibilities and um, and Steve, you, you were talking about a, a couple of different iterations of this public lecture series, so maybe there's something in that, um, whether you've done it different. You have told us a bit about how the Brisbane ones a bit different to the one um, in Melbourne, and maybe there's other there's ways that you've adapted the teaching around that.
5: Yeah, so I guess that the Brisbane ones were invited up to run a lecture series, to, to do basically the same thing again by the the student architecture congress i think it's called it happens every couple of years um but i guess like in terms of the process of running the talks the process is that we did it three times and then we stopped doing it because it's really hard <laughs> so like and also we found that as i think you guys alluded to like you get a similar set of though so the talks would be different we'd start to see some similar things pop up which is like if it's not exciting for us, then we're not going to do it because it's really hard to do this, especially if you're a sessional staff member, if you're working full-time, like you're going in after work to like work an extra four hours. So I think if that was a part of the evolution of that of understanding that if you're not excited about it, then you shouldn't do it. Because like, <laughs> it's not just like, oh, we should teach because we have to teach. It's like, no... You should go in if you really want to do it, which is why I'm not teaching this semester. It's lovely. Um, but I think that that's a part of like knowing when you've got something to add and if you don't, don't do it, I think is actually quite an important thing um, for Simon and myself anyway. Um, so I think that was a part of it. And I think um, the the talk series sort of evolved from being, it was, it was around alongside a studio. So we... This, which is, like, such a fuck thing to do. We've made our students go do an extra night of class. We didn't make them, but, like, there was an extra night of class. And then we presented at the end of the semester and had it sort of pinned up on the side at the walk-around. It was an Arctic studio. And they were just like, what's this thing? Like, oh, well, we ran, we had 23 speakers through. Like, what are you talking about? Like, so understanding, like, when you're first starting out, what is over-delivering? And then also what's asking too much of the students? Like, that wasn't fair on them to ask them to do two nights of class, they're not, you know, like it just, it's a rude thing to do. So it's like what's actually like equitable for for us but also for them and understanding, I think what you're talking about, like this exchange, like it is an exchange. I think that's really important to get a better understanding of that. And I think maybe when you first start teaching, you might not. You kind of, we felt like you've got to be like, They've got to have the best studio and the most work and all this shit, which is just like it's not true. Like that doesn't give them the best outcome. It just makes you feel good about it, and might make other academics think you're good at what you do. But you're just a bit of a dick.
1: <laughs> I guess I, wasn't it, in my notes <laughs> I could tell you went off script there, but I think it goes to that question of what kind of cultures of practice we're trying to create. Because you through the teaching, you're able to reflect after one round of it and think about some of the conversations that are really live in our industry right now. How, many, how much overtime are people doing? Are they getting paid for it? Is it fair to ask that? How does that translate? The way
5: universities set up perpetuates that. Like you're asked to do more work than you probably should be able to do for certain things and then you go into work and then you're expected to do that again. Like it feeds into that like pretty toxic um, relationships.
2: Sorry. <laughs> That's
1: all right. Maybe we'll...
2: Do we want to maybe I'll ask the very last question, which is also hopefully opens questions or at least opportunities for comments from the audience as well, which is really around the idea that you know we're academics and we create pedagogy and but it is fundamentally the students who <laughs> engage with that and that enact that um and so, it is an open question to everybody, really, if you're, if you're a student and have engaged with these, <laughs> the things that we've been talking about today, um, and you want to contribute um, comments and insights, that would be great. Um, but maybe just an open question, and I'll throw it to you, Kyle, is how do the students respond to this? And you can throw and it to me. There's one own.
1: in the audience, <laughs> or two three. Um, I think, like I mentioned, the, um, the assumption of what group work is, because I talk about this idea of the shared landscape and encouraging students to work together to build that into their kind of process, um, but in varied ways. I think there's a hesitation around contributing to group processes initially. Uh, but I think that that's why I focus on small kind of embodied ways of doing that and I think that over time um, Marty and Nick were in the studio last semester that I was running oh, and young I didn't see you come in um, but over time uh, I think there was a sense of students having ownership over the space and the the process of Pinning things up at the start of each session, and adding notes and layers, and highlighting the readings and things like that, all on the walls. Um, even to the point where, yeah, I think they they started helping me helping me bring models back up to the office space at the end of each class, and offering to help me bring them down. So I think um, I think that that's. Feels like a positive reaction. I don't know if that's the kind of answer we're looking for. Was that
2: a positive reaction? (laughs) Great. (laughs) I know, like we're up on the stage. That was (laughs) was it. They can stir. That's all right. Um, But perhaps, maybe there is time if now that we've kind of broken the boundary of the stage too. Um, if there's any questions that people wanted to ask from the audience.
6: Um... No? <laughs> um, I suppose I'm just thinking about like how the criteria shifts <laughs> for like for this sort of change of practice or is it sort of, I don't know... That was what my instant thought was, is like how does that evolve and change um, each semester, each year in consideration of everything going on and what's evolving?
1: Do you mean the marking criteria? Yeah, I suppose because it's always against the criteria
6: at the end, but the process is...
2: Mm -hmm. I would say, and other people in the audience also have expertise in this so feel free to weigh in those of you that do. Um, the criteria is, l- I can't really speak to other institutions but I think you're, because we're, a lot of the pedagogy that we were talking about is developed and delivered in vertically integrated systems of studio or, um, or seminars so f- for anyone listening that doesn't know what that is it's basically where there's one kind of overarching course but there is a lot of different options within that so when you are able to choose which design studio that you want to do and each of those have been designed within and within a particular framework so within those frameworks there is room to play but the assessment criteria and there's a few other Know, that is movable, it, it changes slowly over time with a lot of intense discussion and um, negotiation and kind of big picture thinking, but generally everything that happens if it's inside and assess- if it's a part of an accessible thing has been considered in relation to that existing criteria. So even though these are very open and different, there is some sort of base level that if we looked at all of these seminars together all of these design studios together so um you'd actually they, they all meet the same criteria no it's it's actually a really interesting question <laughs> over time yeah yeah i think the the idea of the design school is that there is it's meeting these challenges and how, how does that happen needs to be thought of across the entire curriculum. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Anyone that, know, that wants to talk to that question can too. <laughs>
6: I'm not from your area, Like, inter- I am an academic of some sort, but not in this area. And so I'm just going to follow on from your question, which was about criteria. So, I'm listening to your contemporary teaching practice and I'm also responding to professionals who are talking about qualities that are less tangible in terms of assessment. So, how are you assessing these less tangible qualities that are so desirable, yet you're within an institution and institutions want things to be assessed in certain, you know quantitative ways so I'm interested what your assessment practice is with this new contemporary practice you're talking about with teaching it's a long question I'm sorry did it make sense
2: it does and I will throw it open to probably Kyle here but I will just add the one thing is that what we were talking about here is a very small aspect of each studio or each course so what we explicitly aim to do today was not really talk about that broader this is not everything that is every part of these courses so i i don't we don't necessarily assess what we were talking about today that forms a part of another bigger course um, but I might Kyle, do you have Anything to add to that?
1: I I think that's a good preface, but I I think it's also, um, you know, there's the criteria that are generated in a standardised way, looking at specific things like uh, the reference to precedent projects or theoretical frameworks or um, are you kind of representing the work clearly? Like there's kind of generic things like that. But I think that the way that we each build our assessment, like the the tasks that we give for the students to capture and work through and represent their their design projects, because at the end of the day, they're all designing something, you know. It's a landscape architecture. Um, the scales might be different. The briefs might be very different. But it's all a kind of means to an end of designing a landscape outcome. Um, and so the I guess the way that the assessment features in that process is thinking about what the assignment actually is and how it's documented. Um, What a portfolio is, for example, like what's the format? Is it speaking from a certain voice? Um, Do we ask for particular drawings that are collected in a certain way? And often there can be very specific things that may include processes like this which feed into the production of that thing. Um, I'm not sure if that answers the question, but it...
6: Students have a very strong emphasis on assessment as being the most important thing. And so if what you're asking them, what your learning objectives are and the qualities that you're asking, they have to be, you know, aligned with assessment. Otherwise, they're like, well, why would I do that? And and perhaps the students can speak to that, because that's what I find. I'm like, but this is so important. It's not accessible. And they're like, I don't care.
0: If this doesn't work, I'm sorry. Um, As a student, it's the, the trust in the process and allowing yourself to... Be vulnerable and trust in that you the person that's doing your course will believe in your outcomes. So, when you produce something, you know, my, my stuff's random, it comes from weird, wonderful places. But I'm lucky to have people around me that say, Well, actually, yeah, that, that works and that fits into what you're being taught. Um, sometimes stuff goes through that you lose. Um, and sometimes you feel that you've exposed something that's really personal and it gets brushed aside but that's life it really is life, you know, we need to be vulnerable we need to, otherwise we don't grow um, the system is evolving and, and I think that's what you're saying, that each time we go through this process we evolve with students but also the process itself evolves as well yeah. I think that
5: was far more articulate than anything I've said tonight, so well done. Um, the, I think as well on that is just being like, though we might talk about this stuff, which might seem um, slightly intangible, maybe in terms of like opening processes up and all this sort of stuff, I think a big part of it is being really clear with the students that we are working towards an endpoint that is an assessment and just being really honest about the staging when that's going to happen and reminding them that like, there is a structure here. We're trying to attempt to loosen you up within that, but like ultimately in week... 12 or 15 or whatever you will have to produce something and this is what it will be and, and just being really clear about that I think stops them worrying as much about what you're saying which is like obviously they're worried about their mark as they should be. Um, in landscape park test is pretty strange because no one's ever asked anyone for their GPA ever when they're going for a job which is quite odd but um, I think that's important to be like make sure that they know where the goal is going towards, especially if they've come from other universities that might be taught in a different way that are maybe a bit more mark and outcome focused than maybe the universities that we teach at are.
2: Yeah. I'm just wary that we've got to our hour um, and it's getting quite dark outside. So I might <laughs> invite, the conversation can certainly continue, but it might do so in a less formal way microphone stage way um so perhaps thank you everyone for listening thank you to our audience oh, our audience <laughs> and thank you to our speakers i did that the wrong way around <laughs> thank you very much for your time your efforts it was great. you're listening to an Pavilion podcast Conversations about design and the world we
6: live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org
2: and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.